I was given this a few moments ago by Crystal and Whitney. They're sixth graders, and it's a Easter basket. It has a bunch of hearts in it. It has love on it. So uh, that'll pick your spirit up, will it? And it uh, will pick your spirit up, too. I want you to stand. I'm going to read you some scripture that will pick your spirit up as well. <clears throat> the words of Jesus in the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. Listen to what he says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that, I get this, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You read this paragraph, you will read the word love nine times, and you will hear him saying over and over, love, joy, love, joy. And if you're, if you're familiar with the, the fruits of the Spirit recorded in Galatians, the first two are what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, humility, and self-control. Lord, thank you for coming in person to demonstrate what love is all about and being raised from the dead to conquer death, to give us life, love, joy, and peace forever. Through your name we do pray and give thanks. Amen. It's distressed me that Christianity has had its times when it, as I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, fell in love with doom and gloom and dressed itself in black and brown and grays rather than in the colorful bright lights of the rainbow of the sun shining through the rain, giving us life, giving us a promise of life everlasting. Uh, when we read the Bible uh, and we read the scripture, and some of us have read it so many times and have heard it, <clears throat> these are just words on a page. And they get cold and impersonal because they just seem to be there. And this morning, I want us to try, with the help of the Spirit of God, to imagine what it would have been like to have been with those disciples in that first experience they had of meeting the resurrected Christ. Now listen, when the early church went out to change the world, when they went out to evangelize the world, they didn't have a Bible. When you read in the New Testament the fact that they mentioned the Scriptures, they're not talking about the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament, or better, what we'd say, the Hebrew Bible. It was uh, 300 years before we had anything compiled and written down as the Scripture. So they didn't have any Bibles. What did they have? They had love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and humility and self-control. And they pulled the rug out from underneath the Roman Empire and brought Christianity into the world without a written word because they were embodying the living word. And the embodiment of the living word is love and joy, and that's what captivated the world. There's nothing in the world more captivating than a child laughing. I mean, you take Scrooge, and he'll even break into a smile when a child throws his head back and just laughs, which is why I love that picture of the laughing Christ, which you all may throw up there on the screen right now if you can do it easily, because it grew out of a Catholic uh, communion out in Arizona, and they have a clown, and they have clowns, and they have uh, art, and they have... All of that. One man asked me after the service, said, can I get a copy of that? Sure, you can have a copy of it. I have one at home. We have one hanging over 
in the children's building that I gave because I want the children to know what kind of man he was, and I'll get into that more in a moment. In fact, in the, fifth, in the um, 11th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, John the Baptist uh, had been preaching, and Jesus had come along. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, you know. And John the Baptist had been preaching a message of judgment, and Jesus comes along preaching a message of, of grace and forgiveness and salvation. And um, he says, I will, quotes the scripture, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women, there has not been one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until, the, until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all of the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation, Jesus says, looking out at the religious leaders of that day, the church of that day. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Jesus continues. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I wonder what he sees in our generation. He was saying to these people, you have lost the capacity for either deep feeling or great joy, and the two always go together. The people, without question, the people who have been through some of the deepest waters and the darkest nights are the same people who are able to celebrate the joy of the mountaintop. What happens to a generation of Christians who let their emotions get neutered. We don't feel deeply, and we do not rejoice greatly. We need to be recaptured by the resurrected Christ. If you'd like to see in your scripture where I'm going to be reading, turn to page 1047 and 48 in the Bible in the book rack in front of you, or turn to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I will read you some things. Now, you've heard this. But listen, pretend you're in the first century and you don't have anything to read it from, but you have one man standing up there and he's telling it. He's saying this, quoting Jesus, one of those who had been with him. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee 
He told them over and over and over again that he was going to die and going to be raised again, but they didn't have ears to hear. They wouldn't accept that. They just blotted that out of their memory. They could not comprehend a world without him. They'd left their families to a degree. They'd left their occupation, their fishing boats, their tax collecting work. They'd left all that to follow him. They could not imagine a world without him. And he kept saying, I'm going to die. And they, they, wouldn't, they just blotted it out. They chose not uh, to hear that. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11. That means to the 11 apostles, Judas having killed himself, only 11 were left, and to all the others. So there were not only the apostles, the original 11 disciples, 12, counting Judas, but 11 now, and all the others, and I don't know who all the others were. It was Mary Magdalene, here are the women, Mary Magdalene, the woman out of whom Jesus cast seven devils, which means she was full of the devil. The word seven means completion and fulfillment. She was full of the devil, and Jesus cast all of those out of her, made her a new person. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, James and John, and others with them who told this to the apostles. They came and told them what those two men dressed in white had said to them that he was risen from the dead. They told them what they had seen and what they had heard, but they did not believe the women. Is that typical of men? They did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. What does a woman know? I mean, they figured that they were either dreaming something or they were having some biological problem or whatever it might be that, that uh, made them dream all of these fantasies and stuff. Um, so they didn't believe them. There's another example over in the book of Acts when uh, Simon Peter had been in prison and he was delivered from prison. They were having a prayer meeting down at the home. I believe it was the home of John Mark. And uh, Peter was delivered from prison, went down there, knocked on the door, uh, and a, a young woman came to the door, and she was so excited she heard Peter's voice, she didn't open the door, so he kept knocking. And, and she recognized his voice. She ran back into the prayer meeting that was going on. They were in there praying. The men were in there praying for the release of Simon Peter. And she ran in there, and she said, let me tell you something. They said, shh, be quiet. Peter's preaching and praying. She said, but let me tell you. Not Peter. He's standing outside the door. John is praying. Shh, you know he does not like to be interrupted when he's praying. Leave him alone. But I want to tell you, be quiet. Just be quiet. She said, he's out there. Their prayers had already been answered, and they didn't believe a woman. Same problem. Reminds me of the story, one of Martha's favorite stories and mine, about uh, Adam and Eve. When God said uh, he created man and woman, and uh, Adam said to God, said, God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for giving me this beautiful person. I mean, she is so attractive and so exciting and just so marvelous and it's just too good to be true. And I want to thank you for giving me such a beautiful creation. But Lord, why did you make her so dumb? And God said, Adam, I made her beautiful so you would be attracted to her. I made her dumb so she would be attracted to you. <clears throat> Now, when, when you tell that story, the first part of it, the women don't like it at all. But they get the last life. He who likes, likes. Well, so um, 
What, what I want to try to communicate, and I, it's just impossible to do, is how under, understated all of this is, unless you let your imagination roam through the pages of these words. Now try to imagine the scene. Try to imagine the scene when they were locked in the upper room for fear that they were going to be captured as well and crucified. They had locked the door. They were so afraid. And Jesus walks in through the locked door. 36th verse. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled. Can you imagine? And frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled like this? Why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see it. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still not believe it, they still not could, could not comprehend it, could not quite understand it, because of joy and amazement. They were so full of joy and so amazed that they just couldn't comprehend the whole thing. Now, imagine trying to put yourself that you've come home from a funeral of one of the dearest people in your life. You're back there at the house afterwards. And everyone is there and they're trying to encourage each other and they may be sharing a little food together. And suppose the person whose funeral you have just been to walks into the room. What do you think these men and those women did when Jesus walked into the room? Did, he say, did they say, oh, it's good to see you again. Uh, we didn't know you were coming, but we have a room here. Come on in. Listen. Can you imagine the noise, the amazement, the joy, the celebration, the crying, the laughing, the hugging that went on in that room? I was standing in the, in the Alamo Dome when I saw Sean Elliott hit that three-pointer from the corner to win that game that sent San Antonio on to the finals into the world championship, and they nearly blew the roof off of the Alamo Dome over a three-pointer. What's happened to the church? When something greater than any three-pointer, greater than any NBA ring or NFL ring or World Series ring or National Hockey League ring or trophy or anything else rolled all into one, doesn't begin to equal what happened in that room when Jesus walked in. And it ought to be the same response among God's people when they come together. To celebrate the life of this man who came to give us life, he said, and to give it to us more abundantly. You know, there was a spurious document written in the early centuries that purported to describe Jesus. And in that document, it said uh, the, the color of his hair and all of that. It is proved conclusively by everybody that it is not a true document. It's spurious. It's false. It's made up. And in that, he, they said that he never smiled. He was never seen to smile. I do not believe that at all. I cannot believe that a bunch of children would crowd around a sourpuss and follow him everywhere he went. I can't believe 
that Jesus was not the most magnetic, energetic, alive, happy person that ever lived. Of course, he could be stern with people who hurt one another. He could be stern with people who misused what it meant to be a follower of the living God. But I tell you, he was openness personified to anybody and everybody. And I believe that it was his smile on his face that was characteristic of him. And you look at the, look at the story of Lazarus. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, before he called him out of the grave, the scripture says, Jesus, well, most of you know that because if you grew up in Sunday school and you were the first one called on to quote a passage of scripture, you, you'd nearly always quote this because you knew you knew at least one passage of scripture. Two words, Jesus what? Jesus wept. Okay. In the Bible, we have only two accounts of Jesus weeping. Lazarus' tomb, and when he wept over the city of Jerusalem, how would have gathered you together as a hen does gather her chicks, but you would not, Jesus said. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Why did they write down the fact that he wept? Because it was not typical of him. Nowhere did they say he laughed. Why? Because he was laughing all the time. He was smiling all of the time. It was unusual to see him weep. Some of you may remember Eric Severide. I always enjoyed hearing him when Huntley and Brinkley were together. He'd come on and he'd have sort of an analysis of the news at the end. And very intelligent man, very perceptive man. And this happened, I heard this, I know, 30, maybe 40 years ago, or even later uh, than that, longer ago than that. Uh, an airplane had crashed, and they'd been reporting on it. And Eric Severide came on to say, uh, we get accused, we in the news media, get accused of always reporting bad news. He said, what we report is, and these are the words I will never forget, we report anything that is an interruption of the norm. A thousand airplanes land safely, one does it. That's an interruption of the norm. A thousand airplanes crash, one lands safely, that's an interruption of the norm. That's what makes news. And that's what made news here. And that's why in Nigeria, the name for God is the Father of Laughter. The Father of Laughter. He came to give us life. I read you that passage of Scripture from the 15th chapter of uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus was talking about my joy be in you and your joy may be complete. What kind of uh, joy does he give? Well, he gives us, first of all, the joy of our salvation and our forgiveness. There's just no joy. There's just nothing to equal that. There's nothing to equal the realization that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to spend eternity with the Lord. You're not perfect, never will be, none of us will be until we go be with him. But he's forgiven us our sins. If we put our faith and trust in him, he's forgiven us. And he has our name written down indelibly in heaven's register. And he's got a place for you. So you ought to throw your hat in the air if you have a hat. <coughs> you ought to have a smile on your face. Because he has forgiven your sins. And he has given you salvation. Paul said, old things have passed away and all things have become new. If any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things passed away. Well, about 20 plus, maybe 30 years ago, I was baptizing 
uh, a man on a Sunday evening when before the days I had everyone come up and stand around the baptistry. It was Sunday night, and there were hundreds of people here, and I was baptizing a number of folks. And uh, I baptized, I don't know, I haven't figured it out, seven, 8,000 people in these years. But uh, we always talked to them beforehand, explained what we're going to do. And so this man, I helped him down the steps, not because he couldn't walk, but because when you're walking into water and the bright lights are shining on it, you don't know when you've gotten to the bottom step. So I'll always say, you've got one more step, and then they come on in. So, and I didn't notice it, didn't pay any attention to it. And I said what I usually say. I quoted some scripture. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I go back slowly. We do not wrestle up there. It's not water polo we're playing. So we go back slowly, and I stop, and I cover the nose with a handkerchief, and they're barely under the water. I don't say the Lord's Prayer while they're under there. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're under, under there only a few seconds, and then I bring them up. And when I brought this man up, his toupee floated out on the top of the water. I, it looked like a dead squirrel. It, it floated out there, and I reached over and grabbed it and slapped it on his head. And I didn't get it on straight. I got it on, on the side of his head there. And I quickly, <laughs> I glorified Dean, you would have an experience like this. Uh, I turned him so that I could be between him and, and the congregation so that people wouldn't notice it. And now, I always look now when I'm getting ready to baptize somebody. If I can see any daylight underneath that, that hair, I want to ask him if you've been using Elmer glue or uh, epoxy or something. But uh, now it's okay. It's okay with me. If a man wants to wear a toupee, I'm not minimizing that at all. But I tell you something, old things do pass away. And when he gets to heaven, he's going to have a full head of hair just like Absalom. I mean, he's going to be, okay, whatever, whatever you want. Old things are passed away. Everything is become new. Um, you remember I've told you this, of course, when Rufus Burleson, who was later president of Baylor University, Baylor began at Independence, Texas, and uh, Rufus Burleson was president uh, at Baylor, and he baptized General Sam Houston, who was living in Independence and had gone, started going to the Baptist church and accepted the Lord. He walked forward one Sunday morning and said to the pastor, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And Rufus Burleson uh, baptized him in a creek down near Independence, Texas. And there's a painting of that that hangs in the, uh, one of the offices, the president's office, at least it was in the president's office in the past at Baylor University. And it is reported that when Rufus Burleson and Sam Houston uh, walked out of the water together, uh, Rufus Burleson said, well, General, all of your sins are washed away. And Sam Houston said, God have mercy on the fishes. <laughs> but let me say a word to you about baptism. <clears throat> a lot of people think Baptists believe you have to be immersed to be a Christian. You have to be immersed to even be a Baptist. I've sprinkled a lot of people in the membership in this church, either because of illness or because they were bedridden, or because they were terrified of water, more water doesn't make you a better Christian. And water baptism doesn't have a thing in the world to do with cleansing our hearts. It may get a little dirt off our hands, but it doesn't do a thing for our hearts. And that's why Paul wrote in the third chapter of the book of Galatians these words, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you have been baptized into Christ. Now, the word baptize 
is an anglicized word from the Greek word baptizo. They didn't want to define it. The word baptizo in Greek means one thing and one thing only. It means to be immersed, submerged. Well, they didn't want to do that, so they just changed the letter or two and created an English word called baptized. But baptizo means to be immersed. Now, what Paul is saying here, he's not talking about water baptism at all because it doesn't have anything to do with you except as an expression of something that's happened inside of you. The what makes us a Christian is to be immersed in the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the salvation of the Lord. We're not just baptized into water. We're baptized into water as an outward expression of having already been baptized into Christ. And what makes a person a Christian is a person who has said, I want to be overwhelmed by, engulfed by, surrounded by Jesus Christ. And that's what it means, and that's what baptism means. And that means that we have the joy of the forgiveness of our sins and of our salvation because we have been baptized into the living water, Jesus Christ himself. One other word, he's come to give us the joy of peace and purpose in living. Peace. That's what he said when he walked in, wasn't it? Peace be unto you. He said it a number of times. They were, they were frightened and troubled, having no idea that they were going to be going out to change the world and that those 11 disciples who were standing there, all of them were going to be, mart were going to be martyred, eventually killed, John was the only one who lived to be in old age, and he was on an island in exile. Joy I give you, my peace I give you. Now listen, there is no peace, there is no peace for me or for you without the indwelling power of the living Christ within us. No peace at all until we allow the living Christ to come live in us. I do not know how many of you have ever attended an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been to a number of them through the years uh, because of Alpha Home, our home for women alcoholics. And uh, there are all kinds of uh, addictions, alcohol, CA, cocaine is anonymous, and, uh, heroin, all kinds of drugs, food. Be addicted to food, you can be addicted to sleep, you can be addicted to sex, you can be addicted to money, uh, to greed. So there are a lot of addictions that are floating, floating around. And what Christ has come to do is come to break every one of those. And he has used through the years Alcoholics Anonymous, those 12 steps of AA, to be an instrument that God has used in a powerful way to bring millions of people to sobriety and to a happy life filled with peace and joy and fulfillment. But if you read anything or know anything about what the AA's called the big book, which talks about the meaning of those 12 steps and then talks about the traditions of AA, listen, if you read it, you'll find out how spiritual it is, and it talks about the 12 steps are wonderful, they're going to help you, but the 12 steps will not make you sober, the 12 steps will not get you off of drugs, but the 12 steps used by this indwelling power of the Holy Spirit will deliver you, will deliver you from that addiction. And it's not just the higher power that does it, which is the rather generalized word used in the 12 steps. The higher power is there, that's true. But listen, the higher power will not do it 
Unless you let the power in you, and that makes it inner power, and that's where the power comes to change your life, to break the addiction in your life, whatever it might be. There, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of gallons of gasoline are in the outlets in San Antonio. I just can't even imagine how many hundreds of thousands of gallons of gas are out there available externally within a few blocks of this church. But if you're out of gas in your car, there may be hundreds of thousands of gallons around there, but you're not going anywhere until you get some fuel in you. And the same thing is true in Christianity. We can have the Bible. We can know all about God and all about Bethlehem and the crucifixion and the resurrection. We can quote scripture. Do you have the power of God in you? It is Christ in you, Paul said, that is the hope of glory. Christ in me. Christ in you. That is the power that changes our life. And that can happen to anybody and to everybody. It's irrespective. It's, it's, it's open to anybody and to everybody. So let that inner power get ins inside of you. When it does, he will deliver you. He will deliver you. I suppose one of the biggest addictions in our day is greed. Greed, addiction to things. Heard a story that's uh, probably not true, but very descriptive of the world in which we live. A young baby boomer in his late 30s, early 40s, whatever, made a lot of money. And he had his dream car, BMW, his Beamer. And he had a terrible wreck in that Beamer. He wasn't hurt. At least he didn't think he was. The car was just torn all up. And he was standing there when a police officer came up. And he said, oh, the young man just nearly crying. He said, look, my Beamer is just, you know, it's just the car of my dreams. It's just been all ruined and torn up here. And the police officer said, I believe you're the most materialistic human being I've ever met in my life. You're standing there worrying about your automobile and your left arm has been torn off in this wreck. And he said, oh my goodness, where's my Rolex? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? BMWs and Rolex and everything else. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose not his arm, but lose his soul? His soul. The only part of us that's going to live forever is our souls. We're all going to physically die. But if we know Jesus Christ, our souls will live forever in his presence and we'll have a new body and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all of the old things will have passed away. Carl Menninger was leading a conference and a woman said, what do I need to do to avoid killing myself because I'm contemplating suicide? He said, get yourself off your hands and get out there and start helping somebody else that's in more trouble than you are. Get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on the needs of others around you. Do that with your money. Do that with your time. Do that with your priorities in life. Herodotus uh, was called the father of history. He lived in the 5th century B.C. in Athens, and uh, he was a historian. And he made this statement. The bitterest sorrow that can come to a person is to aspire to great accomplishments and not to attain them. That was Herodotus. Carlisle Marnie, one of the greatest 
pastors and teachers and preachers Baptists have ever had. Carlisle Marnie, in response to that, said and wrote, Herodotus said, the bitterest sorrow is to aspire to great heights of accomplishment and not to attain them. Marnie said, no. The bitterest sorrow is to want to attain the highest achievements of your life only to find that they were not worth having. What are the great aspirations in your life? Will you get down there at uh, my age or older and look back and say, the bitterest sorrow. Have you planted some trees under which you never planned to sit? Have you sown some seed that will come into fruition long after you're gone to be with the Lord? Are you worried about your beamer and your Rolex? Uh, how many of you are old enough to remember training union? I mean, a lot of you Baptists will. That was a thing we had on Sunday nights. I still think we missed out by not keeping that going, frankly. But nevertheless, I remember belonging and going to the JOY training union the J-O-Y training union. Now there's some classes in church, the J-O-Y class. How many of you know what those three letters stand for? May I see your hand? What does the first letter stand for? Jesus. What does the second letter stand for? What does the third letter stand for? Yourself. That's the priority that will bring you peace and purpose in life. Jesus first, others second, yourself third. As Paul said, in honor preferring one another. Well, Thursday, I went to see a woman who's dying. She's in a convalescent home. Some of you who've been here a long time will know and remember her as warmly as Martha and I do. Her name is Peggy Sickey. Peggy was a member of this church, is a member of this church still, She's been a member of this church for 47 years. After the church was started, she, she joined the third year of this church. She's been here all the 40 years that we've been here. And she'd come by our house and leave books. She'd come by with articles that she thought I would be interested in, and she'd put them in the mailbox. She was one of the most well-read people I know. Harold Duncan does that for me. He puts some things in my mailbox occasionally. He thinks I would enjoy reading. Well, that's what Peggy Sickey did. And I love people to do that because I can't read everything I want to read, and I sure have to know a lot more than I, than, than I know and want to know more every day like you. Uh, and she sold uh, Encyclopedia Britannicus, and she was a remarkable woman. She taught Sunday school class in this church for 27 years. Well, the nurses called me. I had asked them to let me know when she was, when she was lucid enough to visit and so Thursday evening about, I don't know, 7 or 7.30, I called over there to the convalescent center, and I, I said, how is she doing? She, they said, she's doing real well. It'd be a good time to come. So I went over there, walked into her room. Um, no family there. She has always had trouble with her eyes. 
and she knew about some of the difficulties I'd had. And I, I went over there to try to encourage Peggy, and Peggy encouraged me. It nearly always happens that way. There's just no way you can outgive God. You try to do something for somebody else, and the Lord will just pour such blessings on you that you just won't be, as the Scripture says, be able to contain it all. And she started talking about that. And I said, Peggy, how are you doing? And she said, well, I'm not doing very well, but uh, uh, prayers of people at the church and all to help me and encourage me. And uh, I looked at her two feet. Both of them were as black as that piano. She has blood poisoning. Gangrene has set in. She's 90 years of age. And the family is debating, and it's difficult for them. I can't imagine what a difficult decision that would be. The doctors say we can amputate her feet, and maybe she'll have a few years or months, maybe more, to live. She's 90 years of age. She's in great pain now. Uh, just need to pray for those who make those decisions. I, 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 wouldn't, I couldn't begin to tell them what to do. wouldn't even try. And... Uh, and you know what she did? She started telling me jokes. She told me a joke I've heard a hundred times, <clears throat> but preachers learn how to do that. Because <clears throat> we hear a lot of jokes, and people come up and say, did you hear about the preacher playing golf with Arnold Palmer or something you know, like that? Or you remember about God and Arnold Palmer playing? I said, no, tell me about it. Well, I know that. That's fine. And I don't mind hearing a joke over again. If it's funny the first time, it's funny the second time, which is why I keep telling some stories I think are funny. I like them, and I enjoy them whether you do or not. So... Uh, and she said, uh, told me a couple of jokes, golf jokes, one of them. And uh, then she said, I said, Peggy, how many times have you been in the hospital? And she said, oh, my goodness, Buckner, I don't know how many times, how many hospitals even I've been in through these years. She's had a great deal of physical difficulty. It never spilled over into her spirit, though, did it? It never did. And I looked at those blackened feet, and I know that she doesn't have many many days to be with us but she told me this story from Fort Sam Houston I believe it would have been in the Beach Pavilion back in the old days when before they had the new hospital out at, out at Brook General and uh, she was in Ward 27 and she said the people in Ward 27 were all complaining and upset largely because the people that were working in there were always rather curt and and just kind of going through the motions, said there was just nothing joyous about that experience at all. But in Ward 26, next door to us, we could hear all the laughing. They were having a great time, and every now and then we'd hear everybody over there just breaking out into laughter. And there we were, just morose, and we weren't in on it. And she said, one of the men in our ward called the head nurse and said, can you move us over into Ward 26? Or will you bring the leadership from Ward 26 from over from Ward 20? What did I say? Did I get mixed up? Am I doing it? Okay. Over here into our ward so that we can begin to laugh? And I said, well, Peggy, what happened? She said, well, I finally was delivered from that hospital. And, and I got to thinking... What ward is this church going to be in five years from now? Ten years from now? It depends on the leadership we select. It's going to be a church full of grace and love and acceptance. Ecumenical inclusion of all people who've been baptized into Christ. 
irrespective of what church they might be in. Better still, what war are you in? I think I'm going to join Peggy in War 26 or 27. I don't remember which one of them. <clears throat> Wherever they're laughing, because that's where Jesus is. And that's what he wants to do in your heart and in your life. And you can move from that ward of morose discouragement right now into the ward of joy and excitement and acceptance. And that's what this is. I don't know how many of you read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's great novel, Cancer Ward, the one for which he won the Pulitzer Prize that later introduced him to winning the Nobel Peace Prize. I read Cancer Ward, and what it is, it's a picture of the whole world in a cancer ward. Because listen, friend, every one of us in this room is terminal. We're all terminal. And the only part of us that's going to outlive this body is our spirit if we've accepted Christ as our Savior. So I invite you today to come join this ward where we're going to celebrate the joy and the peace and the love and the grace of God. It's his invitation, for he's the great physician, and I'm just a mouthpiece trying to say a word for him, and I say a word for him, come to him this morning. Let's stand and let's sing.